Women on the Line, produced at 3CR, acknowledges the people of the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. We pay respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation, and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. Welcome back to another episode of Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's national women current affairs programs, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Narn, Melbourne, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host today, Scheherazade Blul. So in the lead-up to the federal election, we've seen a host of minor far-right political parties spin, propagate and actively spread disinformation, well, seemingly for political gain. Members and representatives of the United Australia Party, as well as the Liberal Democrats, for example, amongst others, have been regular faces at the ongoing so-called freedom rallies. But I guess today we're more interested in why these freedom rallies are ongoing. What is motivating people to show up to the freedom rallies or join these conspiracy-laden movements more broadly? To delve more deeply into this topic, we hear from the author of Young People and the Far Right, Professor Pam Millan, as well as an activist researching the freedom movement in Nam, Melbourne. But firstly, we'll hear from Professor Pam Nilan speaking at the launch of her latest book titled Young People and the Far Right, which interrogates how specifically young white men get attracted to, in Pam's words, the dystopian fantasies of far right futures. So Pam specialises in new studies and holds a co-joint position at the University of Newcastle in New South Wales. And she is also an honorary professor at the Alfred Deakin Institute at Deakin University. And so we'll hear excerpts of her speaking at the book launch and open forum, which was hosted at the Black Spark Cultural Centre in Thornbury in Nam on April 26. So I'm just going to get started. Now, you can't see this, but that is a young man at a far-right festival in Germany, and he is wearing a T-shirt. He's German, and he's wearing a T-shirt that is um, manufactured and promoted by a company called Thor Steiner in Germany, which is a far-right clothing company. And on the front, he has the, he has the letters HKN... KRZ, which is like, it's like a sort of mimics a rap logo on the front of the T-shirt. Now, that's significant because Hakenkreuz is swastika in German. In Germany, you're not allowed to make overt reference to swastikas or to Hitler or to anything like that. And so this is a coded piece of clothing that is worn by young people in Germany that subtly signals to other members of the peer culture through their hoodies and their T-shirts and their caps and their bags, that they actually are members of the same subculture. And I wanted to start with that because part of understanding the way that the far right reaches out to young people in particular is through the notion of subculture because it, it works with the kind of 
place where you feel at home, where you're with your peers, where you're understood, where the language that you speak is the language that everybody else speaks. Now, having said that, as um, Tenzin said so very eloquently, I'm a youth sociologist, and so my viewpoint is always not what's wrong with young people. What I was really interested in was how does the far right draw young people in who could be anybody? You know, I mean, apart from being young, white and male, that's the demographic. But it tells us nothing about any other aspect of them as to whether they will or they won't get drawn into the far right. So for me, the more interesting question is why does the far right so keen to draw in young people? And secondly, how do they do it? Well, turning to the first question, why is the far right so keen to pull in young people? Radical political groups attract a certain cohort. And we know that there have been some big studies done which are cited in the book that the cohort between the ages of 15 and about 35 is peak. Secondly, how do they do it? Well, the whole book is about that. The majority of those who are drawn to the far right, although not exclusively by any means, are young white males. Girls and young women do get involved, but to a lesser extent. Now, there's a, a sort of a furphy around that they're unemployed. Well, they're not actually unemployed. Certainly in a big, big survey we've done of 335 uh, people, mostly young people, very few of them are actually unemployed. They're precariously employed would be a far better way to understand it. They don't feel any sense of a secure income or a secure future, even if they're tertiary educated, because they live in the gig economy to a large extent. That's the reality. Now, some of the key tenets of the far right, let me just define the far right first off, White supremacy, anti-elitism, <clears throat> often anti, strongly, strongly anti-government, misogynist, homophobic, and often in favour of both complete do what you like and at the same time wanting particular kinds of authoritarian structures. It's a very strange kind of relationship. Now, when I'm talking about young people on the far right, I, talk, I distinguish in the book between what I call floaters and members. Members are people who really sign up, like they join True Blue Crew, they join Soldiers of Odin, they join one of the um, you know, extreme groups that are around the place and hang out with them. Floaters are different. Floaters mainly exist online. They float in and out of various sites. They might not even have any particular endorsement of far-right positions. They like upsetting people. They like causing trouble. They like being offensive. In the book, um, I do describe them as edgelords. Now, one of the things that I propose in the book is that what we're seeing in the way the far right draws in young people is what I call cruel optimism. So cruel optimism is where you're offered something and you come to believe that it's a, it's a really good thing to go for, but it's actually the very opposite of that and leads you into a different kind of journey, a journey that perhaps you never wanted to choose in the first place, but you kind of ended up on that pathway. Now, one of the things the far right does, as all populist movements do, is offer simple answers to very complex questions. And that has a particular appeal. Um, in something I'm writing at the moment, I, I, I declare that the great catch cry of populism is, is we are being lied to. Now, I'll do grammar for a minute. That sentence has no subject. We are being lied to. Who's lying to us? Absent, not there. We are being lied to. That's the passive tense. 
that means something is being done to us. But the person or the agency of some kind that is doing that thing to us is absent from the sentence. Well, who's doing it? Whose interests have been served? Who benefits? And so phrases like that, the catch cries of populism, can appeal to young people. Let's go to social media. Now, the far right targets young people through social media in just gazillions of ways, which I couldn't possibly hope to summarise in a few words. But um, I'll just talk about one or two examples. The far right targets young white male game players, for example, um, through especially those who play online first-person shooter and, and other games where you either observe the person playing or you play in teams or various MMORPG, which is multiplayer online role-playing games, games like Counter-Strike that they tend to spend more time infiltrating. Now, they do this through chat platforms like Discord. If you're a game player and you're an avid game player, then what you want is cheats all the time. And you're also talking to other gamers all the time about how you can get through various levels, how you can do this, how you can do that, how you can maximise your tokens in whatever game you're playing. And Discord is a chat platform for, for young gamers. Now, it is Discord was actually used to organise various far-right events in the United States that ended in deaths and things like that. So chat rooms on Discord. So that's one thing. That's the gamification of hate, as I describe it in the book. So it becomes like a game. And like a game, the targets are depersonalised. So if you, if you kind of get into this trolling game or this doxing game or this Zoom bombing game or this deep fake game, it's a game. And in fact, the far right is pretty avid to, to, to kind of they don't use the term game, but they, they draw people in through a game-like structure of thinking and ideology. One so of the things that they do is say, have you seen this YouTube clip? And YouTube is the ultimate rabbit hole because some survey I read the other day found that in, I think it was Canada, 70% of young people got most of their information from YouTube. YouTube has a kind of... A preference button, you know, it's not a preference button, it's, a, it's an affordance that sits over here. And if it tries to draw you into more things like the thing that you just went into. But these things can be tweaked through bots, through algorithms. And so one of the things that can happen is you get exposed to more and more extreme, serious stuff. And then you go down further and further into the rabbit hole, as they call it. One of the theoretical things about that is that confirmation bias, the creation of a far-right filter bubble, and it relies on moving what we call the Overton window. The Overton window is this concept where you've got a kind of window like that of what is permissible to say. And the far-right seeks to move the Overton window so that more dreadful things are able to be said. Okay, I then go into myths and conspiracies, and that's a fairly kind of fantastical kind of chapter if you into lizard people and extreme things. But the point is, whether you're talking about lizard people or the, the Order of Nine Angles, which is a particularly horrible Satanist far-right group in the UK, it appeals to the imagination and fantasy tastes of young people and it stitches together common culture and political messaging in, in this really strong way. And, of course, QAnon, Pizzagate, and there's a military hype. The invulnerable warrior for truth comes up all the time. 
um, do your own research. That's another crotch cry of the far right. What they mean by that is going to as many sites that agree with us as possible. They don't actually mean do your research at all. Go and find out whatever you can believe in. Now, one of the things that the far right, a lot of far right groups do eventually as you get further and further in is come up with these myths which are pretty much neo-Nazi myths of the Aryan super race, that somehow white people are the natural rulers of the world and always have been and always will be. Now, in settler nations like Australia, this has a different inflection from places like Europe, for example, where people can trace their Viking origins back to the heartland in Scandinavia, for example, although we don't know whether that's entirely true either, but anyway, that's the way they see it. Whereas in recent settler nations like Canada, the USA, Australia, it takes a different um, form. It's kind of the idea that, of course, we have a right to be here. So it, it falls exactly into the kind of terra nullius, the kind of idea that this was territory that was meant to be taken by the super race. The other, that goes over into eugenics and there are several groups like that. Okay, I'm just going to briefly detour through ultranationalism. One of the things that comes through in the far right all the time and that appeals to young people, and this is really important for Australia, to see that young people today, are, a lot of them, are so heavily nationalistic. They're very keen to display the Australian flag. They make pilgrimages to Anzac Cove. There's a kind of a spirit of nationalism in Australia, or rather ultranationalism in Australia, that is quite different. And that's another thing that the far right tries to tap into pride in the nation. And youth nationalism is on the rise everywhere. And one of the things it does is refer to what I call primordial identity, that somehow in, in defending Australia, which we should all be doing and they're coming to get us anyway, that we're defending a particular kind of primordial race and a primordial culture from overcoming being overrun by somebody or other. Now, it's palingetic ultranationalism. Palingetic means... Let's have a revolution and then it'll all be swept away and then something new can happen. And that's an accelerationist thing. It's not confined just to the far right, but it is a very attractive idea. We've got to have the revolution. We've got to bring everything down. And um, you see remnants of that on the big, some of the big rallies that are held in Melbourne from time to time, the idea of, of complete revolution. I mean, sometimes I think... Complete revolution wouldn't be a bad thing. But what's following it, according to the far right, is not something we would ever want really to happen. Um, and so one of the things that happens not so much in Australia, although it does to some extent, is the idea of an ethno-state, a state that would be entirely white and that would have... I mean, that's really what was promised in the French elections, which took place on the weekend, which was amazing, because Marine Le Pen, the um, far right... Um, presidential candidate, was really promising France to return to what I'd call an ethno-state. So the idea of ethno-states is very, also very popular because in terms of young people, they imagine themselves sort of, you know, when, if, if you read stuff written by the far right, the people in question never see themselves as just, okay, I'm now in an ethno-state and I'm still a waiter. It's, it's in terms of them being the boss, of being respected, of being the top, of being, you know, a hero in their own lifetime. You were just listening to Professor Pam Milam speaking at the launch of her latest book, Young People and the Far Right, at the Black Spark Cultural Centre on April 26. And the Black Spark Cultural Centre will host future open forums delving into this topic, and you can search them on Facebook 
or Instagram. Across these stolen lands now called Australia, you have been listening to Women on the Line, highlighting a range of gender non-conforming and women voices, broadcast on the Community Radio Network. So now we hear from an interview I conducted with Mikkel, who has a background in community organising. They are a researcher completing honours in anthropology at the University of Melbourne. And they have an interest in using the tools of anthropology, which is an academic discipline, to interrogate power structures in ways that are useful to grassroots communities. And on a side note, they also really like watching movies and the concept of faffing. Well, just for a bit of context for listeners, can you tell us uh, what the freedom movement is, how it started, what are the, who are the key actors? Totally. Particularly, I'd say the freedom movement started in, in Melbourne. Like, I think there's been pockets of similar or parallel action across Australia. Uh, but it kind of spawned out of the lockdowns and specifically uh, against vaccine mandates. Uh, but obviously lockdown started like two years ago now and mandates have now ended in a lot of different states. We still have some workplace like vaccine mandates in Victoria, but uh, I'm not sure exactly when, but at some point it became more about freedom and less about lockdowns. Uh, and I think that that maybe was triggered particularly towards the end of last year where there was the the union strike and that kind of w- tangentially or kind of was coexisting with a lot of spontaneous protests. And I think that's uh, when I specifically noticed freedom, the word being used the most. Um, yeah. And so now people are still campaigning for the end of like workplace mandates around vaccines, but some people it's become a much bigger issue uh, of like corruption or the end of the Andrews government in Victoria or the overthrowing of the federal government, yeah, for the people that are kind of uh, targeting Canberra. So there's a really broad range of um, goals, shall we say. The key groups like on the ground, so to speak, like attending the protests in Melbourne are there's like Rise Melbourne, uh, there's the Solidarity Movement of Australia who I think have very – interesting iconography linking themselves to the Solidarnosc movement, uh, which was resisting the end of the Soviet regime in Poland in the 80s. Um, There's Reignite Democracy Australia, which people might have heard of because they have some very um, prominent YouTubers or people that are kind of like explicitly like profiting off creating anti-vax kind of content on YouTube. Um, There was a moment where there was a Hero to Zero like campaign supporting healthcare workers that have been locked out of work because they're not vaccinated, but that movement's kind of been a bit dormant. Um, but now, other other than that, you've kind of got your, like, broad um, citizens or individual citizens that are just attending. But far and wide, everyone has really heavily jumped on the election. Uh, and there's a really interesting, uh, really kind of uh, intentionally pluralist approach to the elections that everyone's like we don't care who you vote for just vote the majors last is the like the words that they're using um but there's a lot of united australia party australia one um pauline hansen's one nation party and then even even more kind of obscure fringe groups that have popped up just for this election 
So, yeah, when we talk about the freedom rallies or the ways that they've been um, spoken about, at least in, in kind of liberal mainstream media, has been, you know, often in relation to disenfranchisement or a lack of education or this is the way that, mm. you know, the reasons why people are participating in this movement. Mm. Um, there's also another theme that pops up is around selfishness um, and around kind of people's individual individual progression has been stopped by the pandemic. I think that those, I think that those type of yeah, analyses are not far off. Like I'm definitely looking, I'm trying to find more than like libertarianism or more than this kind of individualistic mindset. Um, I haven't found much yet, like definitely as much as everyone participating in the freedom movement is really about coming together. Uh, they are kind of coming together around a quite individualistic uh, concept of freedom. Like, you know, the mantras at the rallies are like, you know, protect our children and the right to work. So the, the idea that the idea of freedom doesn't really extend very far than like the workplace or the family. Um, but I think that when maybe one challenge to the, the, the argument of selfishness is actually that uh, I think there's a really uh, serious issue around like the design of like social media or media platforms in general that I think hasn't really, we don't really have the tools to grapple with. Um, And the fact that like people time and again, they're saying like, I'm not using mainstream media. I'm going from YouTube to Telegram or I'm going from YouTube to nine gag or, you know, random platform, platform, platform. Um, I think that we don't yet know how to uh, engage with this extreme degree of misinformation. Yeah, I think that that is really missing from the conversation because it is prolific. Uh, and I think, I guess, again, maybe like coming back to the anthropological approaches, I'm trying to understand people's points of view without empathising to the degree of like agreeing with people and I just from the time that I spend on Telegram, I think that it is quite distressing uh, the to to be in that worldview of like every if, if all of the information that they're taking on their thinking is actually real, like that's a really the world is like really chaotic and stressful. Like and and I guess the world is chaotic and stressful, but um, they're kind of existing in this inverted space. Um, yeah. Cool. And just for listeners, Nine Gag is a meme sharing. Yeah. What's Nine Gag? <laughs> yeah, Nine Gag is kind of like if TikTok was just memes. It's kind of like a news feed of memes and videos. Uh, and yeah, that's how some people are just getting their news, just just from memes. You were saying that, you know, from your observations on these kind of um, encrypted messaging apps, you've noticed that uh, at least every day there's like anti-Semitic Mm-hmm. messaging how are people from what you've noticed so far how are people engaging with those I guess broader far-right underpinnings of the of the movement maybe I could give a little summary of like a day in the life of being in one of these telegram chats which is yeah you'll get a lot of like I guess firstly it's pretty like chaotic like because uh, people can post to channels like really prolifically and you don't have to have a source or anything so 
um, in any one of these like main yeah there'll be like maybe some video content that's like pro Russia there may be some memes there'll be something about uh like something debunking vaccines or some kind of like alternative medicine. And then there will sometimes you'll come across something that is like, yeah. And I, I guess warning, this is like really like anti-Semitic stuff, but like really often like messages that are like bombarding lists of, you know, how Pfizer is connected to uh, there's, there's like it's some kind of web between Pfizer, China, the U S um, George Soros, like all of these things that go like around and around and around and how it's kind of this like capitalist uh, Jewish elite that are profiting from um, the vaccine or like the so-called pandemic, like if it exists. Um, and then and then you'll go back to some kind of like obscure memes. There's also things that are really uh, transphobic and it, it's just kind of like an unending. There'll be like, you know, 60 plus posts a day in just one channel and people are often following like many channels and like, you know, prefacing all of this uh, by saying that a lot of people are like a really key pillar of the freedom movement is a really strong, strong, like vehement distrust of mainstream media. So this is how people are absorbing their information and their news is like only on platforms like Telegram or YouTube or things more obscure that I'm kind of com- coming to understand now, but I'm not familiar with. Um, but spaces where, particularly Telegram, spaces that are 100% misinformation. Like, yeah, no no facts. Or, sorry, not facts as we understand them. And I guess your, your research comes at an interesting time just before the, the election. What are the main themes that people are talking about or that you've noticed on these uh, – chat in these chat rooms and these chat pages or encrypted messaging apps there's a r- really strong thing about like en- ending certain leadership so obviously like dan andrews is a really like hated figure in the freedom movement so um while there's the, the federal election coming up now i think that they've already got their sights on the november state election um otherwise it is just a kind of general thing of corruption and centralization of power, um, so which is again really interesting for people that are quite open about never having been interested in politics before. Um, they've kind of accelerated from zero interest to like a hundred percent mistrust of the the major parties. Um, but otherwise, there's a kind of really, uh, I'd say, incoherent mix of what people want beyond that. Like it's kind of just an end to corruption which they see uh, as being achievable through having like a balance of power in these like minor parties and then beyond that I think it's kind of anyone's game. We know that the UAP the United Australia Party mm. have been trying to use this obviously to get seats in parliament and mm-hmm. you know this is all coming back to some a really rich billionaire that doesn't want to pay taxes pretty much, right, mm. and wants yeah. the Labor Party out or whatever. Um, and if, if people want to find out perhaps more kind of critical analyses of mm-hmm. the freedom movement um, from a leftist perspective, where can they go? People in Canberra I think are really good uh, sources for that, like Leah House, who's um, at House Leah on Instagram and, and Roxley. 
Roxley Foley, who's Angry Aboriginal Anarchist on Instagram, I think are really good sources. Um, they've been doing the hard work of actually like dealing with it on the ground um, uh, and critiquing critiquing it often in really funny ways, which is always nice. And then Tom Tanaki, obviously on YouTube, is a really huge source of understanding everything that's been going on in the past couple of years. And that was Mikkel, who chooses to stay anonymous and we've come up with a pseudo name, who has a background in community organising. They're currently completing an honours project at the University of Melbourne and their honours project delves into the Freedom Rallies here in this city. And if you're interested in Professor Pam Nilan's work and her latest book, we'll have a link of that in our show notes on our website. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Nam, Melbourne. And we're broadcast across the continent on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music that you hear on our shows is by Ripley Kavara. And all our programs can be downloaded from 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. Alternatively, you can just listen back to any of our programs on your favourite podcasting app. And the Community Radio Network has just launched a community radio app. It's called Community Radio Plus, and you can also listen back to our shows there. You can download it from the App Store or from Google Play. Thanks for listening. I'm Shahrazad Blue, and tune in again next week on your local community radio station. <laughs>